0: Thank you, Peter, for leading us this far in our worship, and uh, we will continue our worship and looking at the scriptures again this morning. As I draw my teaching ministry at this church to a close over the next couple of months, I even find it difficult to say that, but it's a reality. I was faced with a challenge after finishing First and Second Timothy and spending, wow, away from last year into that, uh, those two wonderful books. I was faced with the challenge: where next? I have indicated to one or two that the one chapter book of Philemon was an option, but on reflection, I realised, well, hey, I need a bigger chunk of scripture uh, to finish up on. So today we are beginning a, a new sermon series called. New Testament snapshots and this series will be based on the four one-chapter books of the New Testament and of course you will know the the one-chapter books uh, Philemon, 2nd John, 3rd John and Jude and so God willing uh, we will be looking at those uh, and making our way through them. So these two these books have two things in common, by the way. They all only have one chapter, as I've said, and the other commonality is they're probably among the most or the least read books in the New Testament. Now, that is because perhaps they are short books, and so we going kind to of flick over them, or we don't kind of see them because two pages stick together and we go to the next big book, um, but we tend to flip past them and fail to give them the attention that they are due. They're a little bit like the Old Testament minor prophets, actually. And the fact that many of them are short prophecies. But as the minor prophets, I don't know why they called them there. Um, they're certainly not minor in their content. And also, these four books in the New Testament are not minor either. But today what we're going to do is begin with Philemon, and it's a short book of only 25 verses, and it's a book that's tucked away between Titus and Hebrews, and so if you open your, your Bibles or your iPads or whatever you've got, um, we will look at this and our sermon title today is Spiritual Quality and True Forgiveness, and we'll read the, the, the whole text I will only be dealing with the first 7 verses and God willing next time we will deal with the remainder of the chapter. And so follow with me as I read the first the 25 verses of this chapter. Verse 1. Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ of Christ Jesus and Timothy our brother to Philemon our beloved brother and fellow worker and to Aphia our sister and to Archippus our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you, my child Anisimus oh, Sorry, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person; that is, sending my very heart. Verse thirteen, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the lord and if then you regard me as a partner accept him as you would me but if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything charge that to my account i Paul am writing this with my own hand i will repay if i will repay it not to mention to you that you owe me even for your own self as well yes brother let me benefit from you and the lord Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I'm sure God will... Bless his word among us. I guess we can call this a story because it's kind of like a story, but it's a letter. Um, and really, of all the Bible stories, this is one of my favorites. And um, even unbelievers actually see the greatness of this little story. You know, it's, it's a story that's kind of full of tension. It, it, it leaves the reader hanging on many occasions because he he doesn't really know the full outcome because the outcome of this story is not told to us but it does give us what is right and what is beautiful and what is loving for believers to do and so with that strange twist of not telling us the outcome and not knowing well was this a happy ever after ending after all It is a wonderful story. But there is power in this short word of God. Because as readers, we are left in no doubt as to how we should respond if we were in similar circumstances. Okay? Similar circumstances to Philemon. Because he's the one that's going to respond here big time or is appealed to to respond. It's an example that captures our minds and our hearts. It gives the reader hope and understanding of how wrongs in the past can be responded to with love, forgiveness, and acceptance. That's what it does, the story. There are several ways to preach this little book. As there are different players in the story. And you could focus by... And teach this book by putting your or the congregation's feet in different shoes. But I want to approach this wonderful story by helping you identify not with Onesimus, the runaway slave, as we will find out, but primarily with Philemon. I want you to identify and put your feet in Philemon's shoes. This well-to-do Christian man. That would be good, wouldn't it, for a start? with this well-respected man with whom Paul appeals to in this letter. But as we do that, let us not lose sight of the fact that in this short letter we will see one of the greatest examples in the whole Bible of what redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation should look like and how that should be. The act of true forgiveness, although this word is not used in this letter, It is the high point, it's the central truth of this short, punchy, engaging letter that Paul wrote to Philemon. But first let me give you some background to the story because it's the historical context that is so important for us to learn and to be gripped by its important lessons. And to do that I want you to remember three names, three names to remember. It can be really summed up by calling to mind the circumstances of three men who are the main players. And the first one, of course, we see is Paul. He's the apostle and prisoner of Jesus Christ. And when I say prisoner of Jesus Christ, he was in prison in Rome or under a house arrest for preaching and teaching the gospel. And so he wrote this personal letter at the same time or in and around the same time with the letter to the Colossian believers and the letter to the Philippian believers And uh, while he was there in the house and rest. And you can read that occasion in Acts 28. And so during this confinement he was able to minister the gospel because he kind of wasn't in the cell like he was in the second imprisonment where there was a lot less freedom. But during his confinement as we have here he was able to minister the gospel not only to Caesar's household that we find he did in Philippians chapter 1 but he is also able to minister the gospel to this runaway slave as we'll find out Anisimus and that brings us to the second person Philemon he was a wealthy believer who had been wronged and so this man Philemon evidently was led to the Lord by Paul himself some years earlier than when he writes this letter to him. It was probably during Paul's ministry when he was at Ephesus. And so Philemon became a prominent member in the church at Colossae. And it seems that his business success was so successful that he was able to purchase or have a large house, large enough to have the church gatherings and meetings there. And he was a man who was active in the gospel work. And that's why Paul calls him a fellow worker in verse 1. A fellow worker. And his wealth is evident also in the fact that he at least owned one slave. So you had to have a bit of substance to own a slave because they had to be purchased and so forth. Now This may sound strange to our ears, but slavery forms the backdrop of this letter to Philemon. And might I say, if we we fail to appreciate what was going down then, we need to understand how slavery was viewed and looked upon in this time in Roman history, in the Roman Empire. You see, in this day and age, or that day and age, I should say, slavery was taken for granted. Matter of fact, it was a normal part of life in that ancient world. Every time the Romans conquered a new province, they added new slaves to the empire. And scholars actually tell us that it was during the Paul days of Paul there were possibly more slaves than there actually were Roman citizens. And so it would not, and was not unusual for a rich man to own thousands of slaves. So in short, slavery was so commonplace and so accepted that no one thought seriously to oppose it at, this day in, at that day and age. And on top of that, Roman law provided little protection for slaves because they were regarded as property. Just like you might own a cow or a sheep or, or whatever. Not as people. Owners could mistreat their slaves. They could even kill them with little or no legal retaliation. The law specifically provided that owners could put runaway slaves to death, presumably as a warning to others for any misdemeanor. So the master was boss in law. Yet Paul sent or was pleading for Philemon to receive Enesimus back. He sent Enesimus back to Philemon. Now we can ask why. This is the central question of the whole book. How and why? Why would Paul do that? Didn't Paul know that owning another person, that slavery is wrong in the eyes of God? By the way, in the Hebrew law, it was Hebrews weren't to take their own brethren as slaves. And so these questions have troubled the thoughtful Christians down through the centuries and millenniums. But we need to keep in mind here that even Jesus did not condemn the evils of slavery. Nor did his disciples campaign to eradicate it. You know that? Matter of fact, if they did, if they had of, it would have resulted in Rome's military might certainly getting into action and brutally crushing any insurrection because slavery was the makeup of their economy. But as we think of that terrible situation, God is always in control, always, always has been and always is, right? And history tells us that it was actually Christianity that eventually sowed the seed that brought the demise of slavery. But a more heinous kind of slavery, I believe, is in picture here. You see, the enslavement of man to sin is a more heinous kind of slavery than physical slavery. And so an enslavement to sin that bars and blocks the way of true and eternal freedom is what is being demonstrated in this story. And so this most heinous kind of slavery, it cannot be destroyed by any social engineering or or any political agendas or any human effort. Do you know how it can be changed? It's changed when the heart is changed through the gospel. And this book illustrates this very principle. Paul does not order Philemon to give Onesimus his freedom, but something far more profound. He calls on Philemon to receive him and treat him as a brother. Now that is a freedom that goes way beyond any political or social change, right? And then we come to Onesimus. He was a slave legally owned by Philemon. He was a slave who had a chip on his shoulder, by the way, originally. And I've allowed my sanctified imagination, I hope, to um, move in here. And so he was a slave with a chip on his shoulder who was sick and tired of the rough deal that life was throwing throwing at him. And he only saw one way out of this enslavement. I know what I'll do. I'll run away. I'll escape. I'll be free from the tyranny of my master Philemon forever. But it seems that he was also an an intelligent man who was also quite creative. Why not escape and be comfortable to boot? Because a slave didn't own anything really much. And so for that, he needed money. And so what he does, he goes in... Obviously, secretly, and he cleans out Philemon's safe and he hightails it to Rome. Why Rome? Well, Rome was a long, long, long way from where he was in modern Turkey at Colossae. And also in Rome, there were thousands of people and there were thousands of slaves and he could easily get lost in the crowd where no one would recognize him. And there he could go unnoticed and enjoy his stolen freedom. Great plan, right? But how true it is that man proposes and God disposes. God sovereignly and providentially intervened in Anisimus' plan. We don't know how, we don't know what the circumstances were. But here we find it must have been Ananias finds himself face to face with the imprisoned Apostle Paul. Maybe he was drunk and disorderly and got chucked in the cell for a night, and wasn't too far away from Paul's cell. We don't know, but he finds himself face to face with the Apostle Paul. Whatever the case, he hears the gospel from Paul and he gets saved. He gets saved. His whole world now is is beautifully turned upside down. He forgets about living it up and enjoying his self-made freedom. He has a far greater purpose within him and motivating him and driving him now. He wants to serve his Savior. He wants to serve his Lord. He wants to do whatever it can and whatever he can to show his gratitude to the God who saved him eternally and freed him from sin's enslavement. And so in deep gratitude, he goes to Paul and since he's the one that led him to Christ, he stays on in Rome and says to Paul, Paul, I'll become your gopher. I'll be your servant. I'll be your fetch and carry boy. Let me do that, please, Paul. Because remember, Paul had a bit of freedom in his first imprisonment. And so there were people coming and going. And this Onesimus was one of them. But it's ironic, right? He was once a disgruntled slave, now a submissive and willing one. And he loves it. He really loves it. He's doing what he was created by God to do, serving God by serving another, one of God's servants and God's people. But all was not well with Onesimus all was not well you see his conscience that's what happens when we get saved what should happen our conscience is sensitized because conscience don't rely on conscience fully because it become dead right well, his conscience was sensitized again uh, and he becomes burdened with his what, what, some of the things that he's done in the past and, and he knows that his sins are forgiven but there are things that need to be dealt with and he really feels the need to come clean about his prior life to the Apostle Paul. And so he says, Paul, I need to tell you something. I used to live in Colossae. Oh, now Paul's ears were immediately listening why I know that place real well but carry on carry on well in Colossae I was a slave there and I stole and I ran off from my master Phil. Philemon did you say Philemon Philemon of Colossae I know this guy really well I led him to the Lord years ago you mean to say that you were his slave He's a faithful guy, this Philemon. He's a well respected brother in the church. This is amazing, Paul would be reminiscing and thinking. But that brings us to the central point of this letter. Paul now has a converted slave on his hands who needs to put things right, he needs to make amends with his master. What should Paul do? It's a little bit like Jesus. Well, what shall I do? Well, Jesus told the uh, the tax collector, "You go back and and you give everything what you've stolen from these other people, etc., etc." Even Nicodemus felt that. Remember, he's going to. He even said what he was going to do. He's going to repay and, and doubly repay those whom he had taken falsely off. So Paul decides to send Nicodemus back to Philemon his legal owner and master by the way this was a huge sacrifice for Paul remember because he needed and he valued this young convert as a fetch and carry boy please get my bread for the week and buy my vitamin A and B and C and, um, and do this and that And he was, he was needed he was a great guy to have around we need those kind of guys, right? And we have some in this church. They're so fantastic. We need them. And Paul needed Onesimus. But what was a sacrifice to Paul would at the same time be a grave at risk for Onesimus. He could be punished for his crimes and have the Lord's protection. He could even be put to death. But Anisibus is now a believer. A believer in Jesus Christ. And that should change. Surely that should change Philemon's reception of it and acceptance of him, right? It should. See, although Anisimus left Philemon a rebel, he will now return to him as a brother. So Paul wants to make sure Philemon understands what has happened. And so then, with all that background, he writes this letter and and he pleads for Philemon to forgive and accept Onesimus. Now this is why our focus needs to be on Philemon. Because we learn from Paul's instructive plea what we should do when we are wronged. And folks, we've all been wronged at some stage in our lives, right? We've all been hurt by people. So how should we respond? I sadly remember a brother who after being deeply hurt and offended by someone, look at me and others who were there at the time, said, Jeff, I cannot, I cannot bring myself to forgive this man because of what he has done to me and my family. That was a Christian brother. How sad. But how dangerous that is, folks. How sad and dangerous. Dangerous because Jesus said in Matthew six fourteen and 15, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, guess what? Your Father will not forgive your sins that's why it's dangerous and so Philemon is the guy that we're going to be looking at this morning briefly in these first seven verses because a forgiving man a forgiving believer in Jesus Christ a forgiving sister whoever the Christian might be who forgives biblically is a person who is characterized by certain things, okay? And so what I want to do this morning is just have a look at what Philemon was characterized by that Paul saw he was fit and ready to forgive Anisimus. Forgiveness flows from Christian character. This is our text for today. And so what we see here that Paul introduces himself and Timothy was with him in Rome and and then he proceeds to address the letter to Philemon and his family and the church that met at their house. This is kind of housed in the first couple of verses. And remember that this... Family was well known by Paul as he once ministered among them. Hence, he uses those intimate terms. He just doesn't pluck them from the air and palaver on. He calls them a beloved brother, a fellow worker, a sister, and a fellow soldier. He mentions those intimate terms by way of introduction and also to remind them of their relationship, not only with Paul, but more importantly with the Lord. What a great way to begin a letter of this nature. You know, this letter is a masterpiece, can I say, of persuasion. A masterpiece. If you want to not write a letter to someone, you need to convince, you need to study how Paul approached Philemon. His, his appeal here in this letter is, is irresistible. He begins by reminding Philemon of his prayers for him, which leads into a whole list of approvals of his godly character. And the first part of his character was that Philemon's love for the Lord coincides with his love for God's people. We see this in verse 4 and 5. You see, Philemon's faith in the Lord, its first characteristic that is necessary for true forgiveness is that he has a love for the Lord and a love for God's people and has his faith in the Lord. And this is a good time to ask do you have a personal faith in Jesus Christ? Because Philemon did have. And so that's a necessity. That's an absolute necessity to genuinely and biblically forgive another, to have faith in Jesus Christ. This is a good time to ask this, because maybe you're sitting here and you're going through the motions and doing what you think you need to do, but really there's not a, you've never had a personal sit-down, as it were, face-to-face, heart-to-heart with God. And said, "Lord, I'm a sinner, and I am guilty of your deserving and of your of your wrath. And I'm a guilty sinner, and I need to be forgiven because my sin, I'm enslaved to it. I need to be freed from it because it's taking me on a broad road that leads to hell. You don't want that kind of enslavement, folks. You need to have faith in Jesus Christ because that's the only." Th- way that will unshackle you and to give you true freedom but as we look at this faith here in this verses 4 and 5 it's not only about I don't believe salvation faith but it's about faith in the Lord for everyday life with all its ups and downs you know sometimes we fail on that right we look back to a past experience but faith is an ongoing living thing in our everyday life the faith that We began with God and in Christ, should be ongoing and growing and progressing. Peter talks about being growing in the faith and the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so Philemon's desire was to please and to love the Lord first and foremost, and this is seen like I mean to say, how do you know that a person loves God? How can you tell? People may say, oh, yes, I love God. You go out to the street and you might hear a person, oh, yes, I love God. But how do you tell? Well, look at Philemon. Coinciding with that, he had a love for the saints, for other believers. You see, this, this man was oozing with forgiveness potentiality. Because why? Because his heart was right toward the Lord and his people. The two go hand in hand. A love for God and a love for His people, like a horse and carriage, like love and marriage, for it to be successful, it must—they they cannot be separated. By the way, this principle is is not unknown, right? Jesus, when asked by a lawyer when he was in his earthly ministry, that lawyer asks, "What is the first and the greatest commandment?" Jesus. The Lord's reply was instant, Matthew 22, verse 37, 39. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment. And, he doesn't stop, and the second is like it. In other words, it's parallel, it's coinciding, it's with. And the second is, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did you hear that? So this is what Philemon was characterized by. He was a man of faith and a man who loved God's people. Philemon understood that because God had forgiven him through faith in Jesus Christ, he was a prime candidate to forgive others as Christ had forgiven him. He understood that. Believers should be the most forgiving people in the world. Am I right? I see a few nods. We should be. Why? I'll tell you. Because we, as believers, have been forgiven by God. Simple, right? It's a no-brainer. We should be the most forgiven people in the world because God has forgiven us. You see, unbelievers do not have this capacity to forgive as we forgive. Saying sorry, as we have heard heaps of it from our politicians and whoever of late, does not cut it. It's usually only external stuff. There's no heart in it. There's no lastingness in it. You see, forgiveness, true forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, as we have here, is rooted in true faith toward God, and it's demonstrated in a love for others. And love for others is first seen in the family of God, the local church, as we have seen here in this little book so far. That's why we need to be here at church. That's why we need to make our gatherings together for worship and fellowship and prayer a top priority, right? Because if you say you love one, the most natural th- love someone, the most natural thing is you want to be with them. You may get some marriages where a husband is one place and a wife is another, but you tell me that is the most strangest and weirdest marriage that I've ever known of. It's not a healthy one, that's for sure. And the family that God has in mind is a family, like I'm talking about a mum and dad and the kids together. We're talking about ideal. We know that there are exceptions, etc. But generally speaking, the ideal family is mum and dad and the children together, where there is nurtured love and togetherness and acceptance. And it's the same for the church, folks. It's the same for the church. You know, uh, we should love being here. You know, I love going home. I even love coming out of my office in the afternoon and going home. I love to be home with my wife. I love to be there because why? Because I love her. And so love for our brothers and sisters demonstrates genuine faith. Forget about the idea which we had a movement some years ago, I love Jesus but I don't love the church so much and so that seemed to give them an excuse to opt out and drift around and go nowhere no, that doesn't cut it either we need to love our brethren but next Paul reminds Philemon and that he prays this is what he says, that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. We see this in verse 6. We see that Philemon's faith in Christ needed to be practically demonstrated in verse 6. In other words, Paul says, Philemon, because your heart is right, because you have everything for life and godliness, to genuinely forgive, do not just read my words, do not just listen to a sermon, do not just be purposeful or intentional but allow this actual knowledge to be your experience. That's a whole different ballgame, believe you me. All that the gospel has equipped you to do, Philemon, do it. Do not hold back. Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, as James reiterates and affirms. And so why is that, folks? Why should this be? So that you are to let your faith to be in true partnership. The word is cornonia, a partnership with the saints. That word cornonia or partnership uh, is used with, with the disciples when James and John were they were Peter and James were, were fishermen in partnership in the fishing business. and so they both got their hands dirty, they both went out in the boat, they both mended nets, they both did all the things. It wasn't one case where one was a partner and another was a sleeping partner just sitting back in his whatever. No, that was just partnership. And so we are in partnership with one another in the assembly with our brothers and sisters. And so saving faith should never be isolated from our practices in daily living. So genuine faith will become effective. It will flourish. And you know, as it flourishes, it will motivate others for the glory of Christ when we demonstrate it. You see, sometimes we know it all, don't we? Or we think we do. We have all our doctrines in place. We tick them all off. We all are so can be so well read. We've got huge libraries or whatever they may be. We have our opinions, and, and you know, all may be good. All may be good. But let me warn you, that kind of mind-engaging only stuff can never place, replace knowledge, the knowledge of experience, of experiencing and practicing the fruit of the Spirit which makes our fate effective. So what's the use of you having a love for God and you knowing that God loves you without you demonstrating it? What's the use? No use at all. And there are many others. Go through the fruit of the Spirit and you'll see what other things you're meant to be and we should be demonstrating. It's a bit like some of you know I had a week's riding on my motorbike with my friend of mine. Went to three states and we cruised all over the place and and I can tell you of the exhilaration of riding a cruising motorbike with the wind in your face and the throb of a powerful engine cruising you down the freeways, etc. And the sense of freedom that that gives you. I can tell you all about that. But that knowledge will be nothing like it experiencing it yourself. You see, Paul is confident that Philemon will want to experience a true knowledge of forgiveness. By how? By forgiving Anisimus, effective faith. Just like us, we can say, oh yes, we should be all forgiving, we should be the most forgiving, and yes, I'm a forgiving person, but when the rubber hits the road, do you forgive? Now, like Philemon, every believer has the opportunity to glorify Christ, because that's what we do when we flesh out these things, when we uh, demonstrate this knowledge that we have, the wherewithal to forgive, we glorify Christ. And thirdly and finally, Philemon served in the church to be a blessing to others. We see this in verse 7. The word forgiveness, as I mentioned before, though not mentioned in this letter at all, you won't see the word, it's obvious that Paul assumes that Philemon knows what it means and its rightful place in his own life. And Paul knows this because why? Philemon is a godly man. Paul knows that Philemon's heart is right with God and, and he's characterized by love and, uh, and he knows if that is the case it will include the capacity and the ability to forgive. After all, God is love. He is forgiving, right? But Philemon is not only loving. We see here that he had a reputation for love. Wow. Please note this: having a reputation for his love, you see Paul picks up on this in verse two and now again in verse seven, and I'll quote the n i v version here. It says in verse seven, "Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. you hear that? This guy's got a reputation, not a reputation for being an intermittent now and again churchgoer or 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 whatever." He had a reputation for love. Some believers said to say, too often bring heartache rather than joy and refreshment to the saints. Kind of proves a lack of love, right? If one thing says one thing, the other thing must say the other. But here we see that because Philemon was characterized by love, what? did he become he was a rich blessing of joy and contentment to the apostle paul and to the saints of his church that met in his house paul says here he refreshed their hearts the word heart here by the way it refers to affections other words the seat of one's emotions and we can include one's feelings in that we all have feelings right god made us a feeling people an emotional people And so what Philemon's Philemon's love did in practice was that he came alongside the downhearted and the hurting people and the troubled souls and he what? He refreshed them. In other words, he made them feel a whole lot better. He loved them so much, he took time to pray with them, to counsel them, to encourage them. To do whatever he could to refresh them, to bring them rest in their time of trial. How we need people in the assembly in the local church like this, folks. Are you one of those? You need to be. God forgave you, didn't he? How we need people like this. You know, because we all get down. I get down. We can all be troubled. I get troubled sometimes. We can all feel the hurt and the pain of life at times. Every one of us goes there, gets there. But too often, we lack the Philemon's. And remember, as far as we know, Philemon was not an elder in the church. He wasn't a pastor, as we say. It's not recorded that he was. He was a businessman. And obviously doing very well and being very successful at his business. In Ephesus. In other words, this active characteristic is not only the need of the pastor or the elders of the church, it needs to be active in every believer's life. Philemon longed and busied himself to be kind and tender hearted toward the saints. And the Apostle Paul knew it was that kind of man, this kind of man, who could be counted on to forgive because he was characterized by the right spiritual stuff. Are you that kind of person? I hope you're hidden there. I hope there's a change from now on. There needs to be. Let me wrap this up this morning by simply challenging you all, including myself. Are we cultivating our characters so to be more like Jesus Christ? because it's only from a godly character that we will have the capacity, the heart of love, to truly forgive others. Look at it this way. If God has and continues to tenderly and graciously forgive us, surely we can be like Philemon and have the character to forgive those who have wronged and sinned against us. That's pretty reasonable, right? May we be challenged by these words. And may God bless his word amongst us.